Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part one in our series on neuroscience. We'll speak to doctors who are at the forefront of understanding the brain, the science behind cognition, injury states, mental health, and mindfulness. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by our guest, esteemed neurosurgeon, Dr. Jam Gajar, president of the Brain Trauma Foundation. In the 1990s, he led efforts to create the first ever guidelines for treating traumatic brain injury. His most recent focus has been on the study of predictive timing and attention, with the research looking at how these two processes enable us to connect with the outside world. Neurosync, an eye-tracking technology he patented, now allows doctors to better diagnose concussions using virtual reality headsets as well as optimizing brain health. Today, we will discuss misinformation about traumatic brain injury, Dr. Gajar's new eye tracking test that can measure and improve our focus, and the future of detecting and correcting impairments such as ADHD, dementia, and brain injury. For today's conversation, we're joined by my co-host, Silicon Valley pediatrician, Dr. Kellen Glinder. Welcome, Kellen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ready for an exciting conversation. Dr. Gajar, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. So, Jam, let's let's go back to the beginning here. You started the Brain Trauma Institute while a resident in, I guess, surgery at Cornell. Can you tell us about what got you interested in this and a little bit about the organization and what it's accomplished since you started it? Yeah. So, so it's the Brain Trauma Foundation. And I started it because when I was a first-year uh, neurosurgery resident, one of the things we have to do is to place a tube in the middle of the brain and you learn how to do it <laughs> and uh, you make a hole in the skull you put this tube in and of course when you're first year resident you're missing a lot and uh, you have to learn so I was there for my first time doing it and you're allowed to do it three times and then the professor takes over I missed three times of course and the professor took the tube and bingo hit the middle you know where you're supposed to hit where the spinal fluid is uh, right away. And I said, how did, how did you do that? And he goes, well, that's why the residency program is six years of training to learn things. And so I went back to my anatomy books and realized that it's actually a center of a circle. And so if you make, a, if you go at 90 degrees to the skull, you hit it every time. So I made a little tripod. It hit every time. <laughs> you didn't need six years of training to do it. You know, one of the, one of the best uses for it turned out to be people who had head trauma. There's a lot of brain swelling, and you want to you want to shrink the swelling, and by hitting the middle of the brain where the spinal fluid is, you can reduce the pressure, and you can monitor the pressure. And if it gets too high, you can have certain kinds of treatment. So I got very specialized when I was training, and this device is being sold through Johnson and Johnson, and still being sold worldwide. So I went around the country talking about head injury and monitoring brain pressure. And I realized that the care that people are getting was really not supported by science and evidence. And a lot of things that people were doing were actually producing more damage. We were hyperventilating people, not giving them their fluids, and the brain was really uh, suffering as a result of that. Even though the primary injury is pretty bad, what was happening afterwards in the hospital wasn't good at all. And so 
we put together the Brain Trauma Foundation with a lot of other neurosurgeons. We came up with best practice guidelines, the first ever in neurosurgery, actually the first ever in any branch of surgery. And it was supported by evidence. And it said, you know, you should fully give fluids to people, not hyperventilate and monitor the brain pressure. And guess what? The death rate fell by 50%. Well, those guidelines now are being updated all the time. We're on like the fifth edition of the adult and the fourth edition of the pediatric. And, and we work very closely with the military, actually. And we just formed a partnership to help them out. We're doing blast injury penetrating. We're doing environments where the soldiers can't be treated immediately. What do you do with head injury? And we expanded into concussion as well, which is the milder form of traumatic brain injury. There's no drugs that help traumatic brain injury. It's the only thing that's really improved the outcome for people with traumatic brain injury, these best practice guidelines. And uh, we continue to maintain them. And if I could jump forward a little bit, the big case was a Central Park victim. And um, we, were, we were struggling to get the guidelines sort of accepted by trauma centers. And she was assaulted in Central Park in the late 90s. And um, she came into New York Hospital, Cornell, where I was, and operated on her, did everything we, we normally do. And nobody knew who she was. It's like a New Yorker in Central Park, uh, assaulted, and nobody, she didn't have any identification on her. Nobody knew who she was. Nobody came out and identified her. So there was a lot of interest in the case. I was on the news every morning. She was in coma. How was she going to do? The mayor came by every, every morning. And, and then um, she woke up and uh, she actually did quite well. And I had the New Yorker and the New York Times vying for a story. And it turned out they had a new writer for the New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell. So that was his first piece in the New Yorker was the coma victim. He wrote about it. A lot of people, the public picked up on it, trauma centers. And from then on, everybody started following his best practice guidelines and the outcomes really improved. The foundation does uh, really good work. I'm really happy to lead it, but with a lot of neurosurgeons around the world now who really back it up and do a lot of the hard work producing these guidelines. I'm wondering, all the research that you've done with the guidelines for significant head injury, how does that relate to the milder concussion that many people listening may have experienced themselves. Thanks for asking that question, because I think there's a lot of misinformation. People have their kids playing sports. They come home, you know, they had a concussion. How do you manage it? There's a lot of misinformation. So I've had a lot of interest in this area because probably the next part of our conversation is going to be on attention. But let me, let me just put something up front for people about concussion. And by the way, the Brain Trauma Foundation has published two guidelines on concussion and management of concussion and what things to look out for, what to do. And the main thing is concussion is really a disruption of attention. And so people have a concussion, can't pay attention properly, and so they're at risk for injury. So it's important to identify the concussion and the impairments and make sure they don't have another injury. When you say risk for injury, you mean any injury, not another brain injury, I presume, or both or all of the above. Yeah, they can't pay attention. They get in the car, they get a car accident. They're walking down the street. They don't see the ledge in, in the sidewalk and they trip, you know. I mean, those kinds of things where you normally pay attention to your environment so you can, you can navigate it and you don't do well. You know, on top of that, you have headaches, you have dizziness, you have nausea, all sorts of symptoms. So 
the question is, you know, should kids be looking at screens? No, don't look at screens. Go in a dark room. Wait for your symptoms to go away. That's the worst thing you can do because what happens is then people become socially isolated. They don't exercise. The brain doesn't get trained in the, whatever the impairment is, trying to correct it. And it leads to a worse outcome. A lot of kids get anxiety and depression and you don't treat their impairment. So they are impaired. And if they do brain work, they will not do well in it. Performance is down, but it does not create an additional brain injury, which I think a lot of people think about. That if you look at a screen, the brain is getting more damaged. There is absolutely no proof of that whatsoever. In fact, what we do is take care of the Stanford varsity athletes. The next day, they're all on stationary bike, like going like crazy because exercise promotes recovery, cardio exercise. And so it's very important to exercise. Bike is good because if you can't pay attention, it's hard to get injured on a stationary bike. So you do have performance and attention problems, but there's no reason why you can look at your screen, you can do those things, you can get a headache. It's very different from your performance is bad versus you're getting additional brain injury. So early exercise is important. A lot of people with concussion have sleep problems at the beginning, but I think it's very important to realize in concussion that there's a lot of misinformation you should consult with people that really know about how to manage it. And if you manage it properly, you can have a full recovery, do well. If you don't manage it properly, you can have long-term consequences. So I have a question then. So you've developed these guidelines for hospitals and ambulances and rural healthcare centers. And yet when a person gets injured that's not going to one of those places, they consult Dr. Google or now Dr. ChatGBT or pick the new digital doctor out there and they get a wide range of varying results. Why aren't there guidelines for the everyday person? I got a concussion. What do I do? Yeah. I mean, the problem is that there are 32 definitions of concussion. That's a problem. People don't have any sort of theory of what's going on in the brain when somebody has a concussion. So that's a problem. Okay. There are people who do research on it, like myself, who have a pretty good idea of what's going on, but you know that hasn't reached the level of everyone else managing it. I'll tell you my personal view is that a lot of these diagnostic labels, whether it be concussion, dementia, ADHD, Alzheimer's, dyslexia, all these kind of labels, a lot of them are unfortunately subjective. And it doesn't really identify what's really wrong with this person. What's the actual objective impairment? I would say that I think we need to move back, get away from these labels that don't really provide any additional information to the public or the patient, and get into identifying impairments. What is the impairment? And then you go, well, What's an impairment? I mean, if you can't do square roots, is that an impairment? Well, like if you're a mathematician, it's an impairment. <laughs> but if you're a regular person like us, no. What do you need to be ready to engage the outside world? It's readiness, really. If you need something to engage the outside world, and I'd say attention is something everybody needs, whatever you do in processing the information, and you can't do it, that's an impairment. And so you want to correct it. I think the future is we're not going to have labels anymore. We're going to get away from labels and say, this is what your brain needs to do to deal with the outside world. And you need to have these things. And I'd say attention is something everybody needs. And then there's, depending on your job, you have like, you maybe need really good memory or you really need good processing on doing square roots or, you know, whatever it is that you can figure out whether the person can do it or not. And, you know, the thing that really 
impacts readiness or, or impairment is sleep. Sleep's a big one. You know, we all know if you don't get a good night's sleep, the, the next day, you know, we can't process that well. Well, it's really about attention. We can't pay attention that well. But we get back into what's the impairment? How do you measure it? I think right now, I think neuroscience is in a, in a crisis. There's a lot of science being done. A lot of really good science is being done. The question is, is it useful? Is it actually helping the public in the current clinical neuroscience problems that we have? And it goes from development, from autism, dyslexia, ADHD, to injury, you know, like concussion, and then early dementia and onwards. And so this whole spectrum of, of neurological problems, I mean, Alzheimer's, I mean, you know, do we have a drug that works? You know, no, this, we're still up in plaques and tangles. Maybe we need to think about something else, you know, concussion. What are we doing for concussion? I'd love to talk about attention for a minute and how does the intersection, I mean, maybe we've parsed psychiatry, neurology, neurosurgery into three discrete buckets, but they really have a lot of overlapping cores because you study attention, but you're a neurosurgeon. So it feels like you should be taking things out and putting things in, whereas the other people need to sit and talk about it and find pills and stuff for those solutions or behavioral techniques. I'd probably go historical where you can link psychiatry, neurology, and neurosurgery into prefrontal lobotomies back way back in the, in the 30s. There's sort of a link of all of them where we had misfits. There's a book called Last Resorts by Pressman. It's a really good historical summary of these, uh, these hospitals where people, misfits, would go into. All the homeless people you see in, in the cities, they used to be in these hospitals. They got emptied out in the 70s, and you're seeing people with psychiatric problems. But back then, uh, they would either give them insulin and make them hypoglycemic and have seizures, or they disconnect the front part of their brain from the back, and they become very passive. So there's an intersection of psychiatry, neurology, and, and neurosurgery. The nexus of psychiatry, neurology, and neurosurgery may also live in this space between attention and the brain as a prediction model. I've often thought of that as it takes certain amounts of time to actually get your signal from where you first originated out to act on the world. And it takes certain amounts of time to actually perceive what's really going on. Can you talk about that, the, the brain as a prediction model and how that relates to attention? Well, I think the brain is a prediction machine. Uh, it has to be. You know, at the end of the day, the brain's dealing with time and space. And it's constrained. You know, what, one of the things to look about is, is I always like to take people into the present moment. So if we start there, the present happens. Your brain is just basically a sensory organ. You hear things, you see things. That's it, just sensation. And then you have motor output. You reach for things, you talk, you move. It's an interaction with the outside world. But when you, when you see something or hear something, by the time the light comes to your eyes, goes to the back of your brain and you say, and you say, oh, it's a tree. Time has gone by. Well, let's not pick up a tree, but let's say a car moving. It's not there anymore. Or say you're playing tennis. When you see the ball come over the net and you actually see the ball, it's not there anymore. So it's like you see the ball and you swing your racket to hit the ball. The ball's not there anymore. So if you really relied on your brain, the current timing, which I always say the brain's present, is the presence past. Say that one more time. The brain's present, present moment, like right now with everybody's brain listening to this or our brains are present. If you compare that to what you were attended to was 
the presence is actually that that surpassed. So you look at something, let's say the tennis ball. When you see the tennis ball in your head, it's not there anymore. So it's the past. It's over here now, you know? So you're always behind, but your brain is always behind. It's not in the present. And actually nothing conscious can be in the present because it takes time to appreciate the present, to see it, to hear it, to feel it. So if you want to hit the ball, you really have to be in the future. And that's what happened is the brain got bigger and bigger and bigger in evolution. And it took longer and longer to process information. We had to be more and more in the future. We had to predict the ball's coming over. It's going to be here at this time. I, I start swinging my racket before the ball gets there. I'm swinging the racket before it gets there. And guess what? Well, you're expecting something. You're always expecting something. Somebody's talking the, the cadence of their voice. You're expecting, you process the information with the cadence. That's how we interact with the outside world. This is so present in child development, right? Where kids learn the prosody, the music of the speech first, then they learn the cadence. I speak, you speak, and then they start formulating the words. But as the predictive model, you know, you can see that with your children. They learn to walk. They eventually learn to run. They learn to hit a tennis ball, as you're saying. And it kind of unwinds, hopefully, at the other end. <laughs> then we get into my favorite organ. What's the organ that's doing the timing or learning? And, you know, this learning part, you know, kids play is an incredibly important biological need for kids. If you look at sort of the definition for play, it's something that's a waste of time. You know, Victorian kids, just a waste of time play. It actually isn't. It's, it's the brain really needs to do it to develop. And it's developing the cerebellum, which is called the little brain back here. I asked the neurosurgery residents, you know, where are most of the neurons in the brain? And even then, they'll say, oh, it's in the prefrontal cortex, you know, because that's where thinking and philosophy and everything is. You need, need lots of neurons. Well, let's suppose there's 10 neurons in the brain. I'm like, there's 100 billion. But let's, say, let's suppose there's 10. Eight of them, eight, 80 percent, 80 are in the cerebellum, the little brain. I don't know why they call it the little brain if 80% of your neurons are there. It's called the big brain, and this part's a small brain. But anyway, and the reason why you have so many neurons, because neurons are really good at timing and coincidence detectors. So you need the neurons to be able to get the timing right with the outside world. And as our brains grew and had more functions, the cerebellum had to grow. If you look at evolution of animals and mammals, and especially in, in, in Homo sapiens, the cerebellum and the parietal lobe here. So the parietal lobe does space, where things are. So space and time got really big in the human brain because you have to deal with the outside world. And all the neurons are there trying to figure out when and where. Where's the ball, which is not a big problem, but when, especially when the ball goes fast, is really a problem. And so our reaction with outside world is all in timing. When you're first a kid, you're learning the timing. That's why kids are doing the same thing over and over again. They're repeating it. They gain the timing. Once they get it, they move on to the next thing. Play like a repetitive, boring activity to get that timing. And then those eight out of 10 brain cells in the cerebellum are actually sitting outside when you're born. So 80% of your brain is sitting outside the brain when you're born. And then as the kid plays, interacts with the outside world, they descend and make connection, get the timing right. So you have a platform that's set for the first seven years of life that you use the rest of your life to do timing. And most of the timing you do is within like a two and a half second 
thing. That's why we have cadence or poems that are about two and a half seconds and our movement. They're all like in this space-time envelope of about two and a half seconds. You know, a large part of it's prediction. And prediction develops around 18 months. Guess what? That's where autism develops. And if you look at autistic kids, they can't interact with the outside world. They can't get the timing right. But they get their own timing correct. And so they move and do repetitive activities on their own. They auto-stimulate and they get the timing right. They don't get error signals. But if they try to, to do something with the outside world, they can't do it. They, and it's a horrible feeling. When you don't get your timing right, you get get nasty, nasty signals. They go to the amygdala and enter cingulate and they produce headaches and dizziness and anxiety and then long-term depression. So there's timing is something we haven't really addressed in neuroscience. I feel if you look at neuroscience, it's kind of like the information comes in, where does it go? No, it's before it comes in. The before part, the prediction part, uh, the attention part, which I, attention is kind of a loaded word, but prediction, timing is really important and, and I think is the next big frontier. I think the last frontier is time. It's not space. And so how neuroscience should get back and look at timing and how the brain deals with it. a lot of pathology comes out of poor timing either in development injury or degeneration they're looking at how the brain timing goes along so i think we need to you know we need a crisis in neuroscience research so you know, say hey let's, let's let's look at this again and say you know how does the brain deal with the present moment and then from there you can solve a lot of problems actually aldris huxley has got a beautiful saying he's wrote a book called The Art of Seeing. And he describes uh, waking up in, in the dentist chair. He had anesthesia and he's coming out of anesthesia and, and he's looking at he's a big window in front of him. And he just sees pixels. It's the blur. Actually, that's the outside world, big blur. And then he starts seeing colors merge. And then he gradually sees structures. And then he sees like houses, but he doesn't see a relationship to him. He sees a relationship to them. And then he sees, oh, I'm looking at a street with houses on it. So he goes through all these stages. And that's what we do in, in a couple of milliseconds is paying attention to the outside. It's all a blur. I mean, that's not a, really a tree out there. It's a bunch of pixels and everything else merging with the outside world. You know, it's like, and so we, we just think the outside world is there and it's all organized. It's not. You know, you, all you can see is if you put your thumb out, your hand out, your thumbnail, everything else is blurry. And the world's a blur. And attention is work in selecting that thing you want to process, whether it's a word, it's hitting the tennis ball, it's driving the car, seeing cars, it's the interaction. I think paying attention is work in doing that. And you have these oscillators in the cerebellum doing the timing. And it, guess what? The oscillators get tired about five o'clock in the afternoon because they're doing all this work. They're analog. And after a while, they can't predict very well. And you get to start getting error signals. You don't want to pay attention anymore because you don't want to work anymore. And so you have a beer, a glass of wine, and you relax. And, you know, you don't have to work anymore. And then you go to sleep. And then guess what? During sleep, oh, my gosh, these stages. And suddenly you're in this really deep stage where the brain decides, hey, we're going to paralyze the body, isolate the brain, and send this little signal through it one per second. And the eyes will be jumping back and forth, and they call that dream state. Why is that happening? And well, it turns out those signals go right into the cerebellum, and those 80 uh, billion neurons that are trying to like 
predict, they get tuned up. Then you wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm back on. I can pay attention again, right? And so it's work and you get fatigued after a while. You go to sleep. You have REM sleep. They get tuned up and you go back to work again. You repeat that cycle every 24 hours. Bingo, bingo, bingo. You don't sleep. You have a problem with attention. You can't pay attention as well. But let's let's talk about this invention that you've co-founded or developed, Jam, this uh, biomarker, if you will, for attention. The company that has been formed as a result of your research is called NeuroSync, and it is like an AR, VR uh, device that you wear, kind of like an Oculus, and it asks you to follow some things with your eyes. And because you're following things with your eyes and you're kind of predicting where it's going to be next, the better you pay attention, the more likely you are, you are to predict where that little thing will be next. So let's talk about the science behind this, this technology you've invented to create a biomarker for attention and why it's useful. You know, uh, it was a Gloria Steinem who said, to make a difference, you should measure a difference. <laughs> so um, I think it's important if you want to make a difference, you got to measure it. It's got to be objective. And so... If you want to measure timing, you need something that's very precise and accurate. Well, we're sitting around with people and we want to know if they're paying attention. We don't look at their left thumb. We look at their eyes. And the reason we look at their eyes is because the brain can't process visually the whole world. It's just actually, it's a problem we have in, in VR goggles. The, the companies don't want to pixelate the whole screen. It takes too much computing power. Well, the brain realizes a long time ago, the brain got bigger and bigger and said, hey, listen, I can't process everything you're seeing at once. I'm not going to, so I'm just going to have this little area in the back of the eye called a fovea where everything's going to get focused. And it's like one degree of the whole world that you're looking at. It's a very small area. It's the, it's the part where you put your hand out, put your thumb up, and you look at your thumbnail. That's all you can see. Everything else outside of that is blurry. And so what job of the body is to have the image consistently on the fovea. So when you're moving, you're looking at something, you're actually predicting where your body is going to be and move your eyes so you can keep the target on the fovea. And so a lot of things we do in life, we, we move around, but we keep our eye on whatever it is that we're looking at. It's pretty unique uh, to humans and primates. And so we can use that to measure prediction because it's very precise. So if you have things moving in the outside world, you have to predict where they're going to be and move the eye so it lands on it. So um, I decided to use a dot going around the circle because it's continuous and it stays at the same speed. After half a circle, the brain goes, okay, it's moving in a circle. I know the speed. I'll predict and I'll land the eye right on it. And that's what it does. Most people really good at, because your brain's a prediction machine, at doing that task. But if your timing is off or your spatial prediction's off, you won't be able to do it very well. And it's a very useful test because you're driving a car, you're interacting outside world. Visual attention is a really important thing. So I wrote a paper a long time ago with a professor at Berkeley called Rich Ivory, who's an expert in cerebellum. We did tapping at first, you know, looking at cadence. So we did that, and the military uh, funded a lot of the studies. The military said, hey, what about sleep, sleep deprivation? A lot of our soldiers are tired. How do you know that the eye-tracking signal you see in concussion we don't see it in sleep. So we sleep deprived soldiers, and there's a different signal for sleep. ADHD, there's a separate signal for ADHD. Those kids are jittery around the target. We're actually doing a study now showing that when they go on stimulants, their eye tracking imp improves immediately. And we're also doing training 
on people who have concussion, ADHD, early dementia, where we actually feed back the signal. We show their eye position and we train them to improve their timing, which is, I think, is going to be really revolutionary. We've done it, we've done it obviously in concussion patients a lot and we've done it in ADHD kids and a lot of them have come off their medication. Of course, the technology of picking up eye position is really difficult. And when Facebook bought Oculus, that was going in the right direction. And then Apple bought an eye tracking company, which, and then Microsoft HoloLens has um, eye tracking. So all these devices now, they can't pixelate the whole screen. So they want to know where your eyes are looking so they can put the content there. It's called foveated rendering. And so every single one of these companies, as they're putting out these VR or AR. AR is augmented reality. You can see the outside world, but they superimpose things on top of it, which is, I think, going to be the next, the most useful technology. I think VR is more sort of entertainment, gaming. So now all these companies are coming out with AR, VR with eye tracking built in. And we use those uh, technologies put in a software, which does all the analytics. The test is 30 seconds. It's really fast. And with, within a minute, you get an entire report on your attention. The problem with the the concussion or any of these labels is that they're stuck with their their diagnostics, right? The recent football snafus on concussion diagnosis, you know, well, it's 32 definitions. Which one is the person using when they make their diagnosis? What they should really do is, are you ready to play football? Are you ready to play sports? Are you ready to go to school? Are you ready to watch Netflix? What is it you need to do those activities? That's what we should be measuring. And a lot of it is attention. You know, what do you need to play football? You need to, you need to have visual attention. You need to have balance. You need to know where you are in time and space. And you can play football. Uh, if you can't do those things, you're out. Is it you didn't sleep well last night or, or you have a concussion? I don't care at that point in the sidelines, you're out. <laughs> And then somebody else can make a diagnosis or whatever, whatever they want to do. And find, I mean, they should do is find what the impairment is. Oh, your, your balance is off. Okay. Well, let's get your balance back. Once your balance comes back to where you're ready to play football, you go back and play football. So it, it gets away from the diagnosis. It says your balance is off. You can't follow things with your eyes. You can't play football. You can't go to school. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of kids uh, who go to school, they, they can't read properly or they move their head try and read and nobody picks up on it and a lot of kids have the thing of it's intelligence problems it's not it's an attention problem that's trainable and so a lot of these kids with dynamic vision problems don't play sports but if they've got a really good processor they're smart they'll go into the sciences so you see the nerds you know, the nerds are the ones who are timing isn't that great they don't play ping pong they don't play basketball they don't play ball sports but they're really good at sciences well, we should make them all that they can be, right? We should help them with their timing and train them up. And you can train these kids to improve their timing. And guess what? They, they become more centered, more confident, and they can be, they have a lot more choices in life than, than what they had from before. Well, I love the idea that we have a set of glasses or something like that you can use on the sidelines to say, is this kid ready to get into the, into the game? And I could envision a distant future where that happens is this kid ready for school today? Or is this kid likely to fall asleep at the two o'clock study hall or whatever? Is this kid, you know, that that kind of societal attention on individual needs 
doesn't exist right now, really. It really falls on a lot of families to do that kind of rigor if they want to. I do think that the pediatric world in one realm has this dialed in, in that kids who have developmental difficulties, who are seeing a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, to help learn some developmental skills, or Jam, you might say, to help the predictive machine hone its calculations, that therapeutic world doesn't care about the diagnosis. That therapeutic world is all about mapping function and mapping deficit and trying to use places where kids excel to leverage their growth in their deficits. And we as physicians, well-meaning parents, insurance companies are constantly looking for the label (laughs) to kind of organize that information in our brain. Although really what matters is mapping out the deficits. Feels like this is a clinical tool right now, Jam, that, that is used in the clinical setting for people to evaluate concussions, maybe ADHD. And, and I know that there's a whole other discussion, which we'll probably have to have at another time on how maybe you could improve human cognitive performance using a tool like this. So just in the spirit of time, this has been a fascinating conversation. And Jam and Kellen, I feel like we've, we've really just scratched the surface. We've just peeled back one layer of the, of the onion on, on uh, neuroscience and attention. I think we've learned where neuroscience and consciousness and all these things come together to really improve the human experience and, and make people less anxious, have less headaches, less nausea, because they did the right things when they understood what was going on through some objective measures. So with that, thank you, Kellen, very much. Great energy. I really appreciate you co-hosting this with me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And Jam, thank you very much. This has been incredibly enlightening. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you both. If you would like to learn more from Dr. Kajar, send us your thoughts at askpm at privatemedical.org. We hope to invite him back to the show and answer your questions. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system. Please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch. You can find the link in the show notes.